Today is a special Sunday. It's a special Sunday. Not every Sunday we get to do what we're doing here this Sunday. And what I am speaking of specifically is baptism. We are going to have baptisms uh, after the sermon today. And I, I love I love, it's one of the things that I just love as a pastor. I love watching people get baptized. It is such a special uh, ritual, such a special ceremony for us as believers. Uh, God has given us this ritual to remind us of what He does in salvation. He washes us. He cleanses us. Uh, That feeling that you get of guilt and shame when you are made aware that you're wrong when you feel that, that gut wrench, man, I shouldn't have done that. When you feel the weight of hurting someone or doing something and you, you, feel, you feel dirty, to have that washed, to have that cleansed, to have it cleansed once and for all by God. And then to have this wonderful picture that we get to see brothers and sisters in our family do and it reminds us of what God has done for us. Baptism is a picture of what He has done. Another picture that God has given us is the communion table, which we partake in every Sunday. Jesus said, do this as often as you can. And we gather every Sunday, and so we, we celebrate the table every Sunday. There's bread, and there's juice, the fruit of the vine. And we see in that these symbols of Jesus' body, Jesus' blood, a table, Tables are where families eat, that God has made us a table, that He has prepared uh, something for us. He has given Himself for us. It's a picture of family. It's a picture of sacrifice. It's a picture of Christ. It's a picture of Israel and the Passover and the Exodus and history and reality. It's, it's, it's wonderful. That's, that's when we come, we come to see these pictures and be reminded of what He has done. You come to hear the meaning of these pictures. This thing we call the Gospel, the Good News, is something that we ought not to ever grow tired of hearing. Something that we ought not to ever tolerate not being declared in the presence of God's people. If you're in a church and you don't hear the Gospel declared, you you must say something to someone like, Hey, what was that? You biffed it, Pastor. I didn't hear anything about the Gospel. And sadly, many churches are that way. You get five steps to being a better you. It sounds more like a TED Talk with Bible verses sprinkled on top of it, often out of context. And you're not getting to hear the message of the Gospel and see these pictures of the Gospel. Do this as often as you can. We have communion every Sunday. It's great. I'd love to have baptism every Sunday. Wouldn't that be cool? And so here we are today, we get to celebrate that, and because I'm a teacher in the church, a pastor in the church, one of the things that that really burdens me is that we understand our rituals, that we're not going through the motions, that church isn't a box that we click that we did that week, and and you go and you don't really understand what's going on. I want to make sure that we understand what it is that we're doing here and what it is that we'll be witnessing. And so last week I launched a study preemptively knowing that Baptism Sunday was coming in the Gospel of Matthew in the third chapter. So if you would open your Bibles and find your way to the Gospel of Matthew in the third chapter where we left off last Sunday. Uh, Last Sunday we looked at this section of Matthew's Gospel 
It's a document from the first century of the eyewitness community of the historical Jesus. We also cross-reference the Gospel of Luke to help us to understand in preparation for Baptism Sunday coming, the historical figure who's really known for baptism, that guy down by the river, John the Baptizer, you know? Uh, who is this guy down by the river dunking people in the water? And what is all that about? And so last week we started to dig into that historical figure and we saw his origins account of who this figure is. And today we are going to pick up there and we're going to see none other than the historical Jesus down by the river with John. I have that SNL skit in my head now. Down by the river with Farley. Uh, gotta shake it, gotta shake it. Okay, so by way of introduction... Before we get into the text of Matthew 3, I want, to orient us, I want to orient us to what's going on in Matthew 3 with a, a, big, a big picture of the storyline of the gospel. Uh, that said, let's look at a couple of verses uh, in Matthew 3, and then I'll zoom off and I'll orient this section of the Bible with the whole story of the Bible. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, verse 2. Draw your eyes down at verse 8. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repent, verse 2. Repentance, verse 8. Look at verse 11. As for me, I baptize you with water for what? Repentance. 11, 8, 2. Repent, repentance, repentance. There's a repetition of this word. And often when authors repeat themselves, they're, they're doing it not because they want to torture you with redundancy, but they want to make sure you get the point. Now, now this, this, this word for repentance is a significant word, and it's a word that is getting at sin and salvation. This word for repentance in the original language is this word metanoeo. This is the word in the, in the Greek. Actually, yesterday I uh, was uh, re-watching an old movie that I hadn't seen in a while, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Have you seen it? It's pretty funny. And the, there's a character in it, the dad, and pretty much like anything that happens, he's like, that comes from the Greeks. You know, like that, you see the Greek word, this means this, and therefore that's how you get this, you know, and it's a really funny thing. And so uh, and, and now I'm feeling a bit like him telling you, the Greek word is metanoeo, uh, but in this case, it's, it's actually the case. Uh, this document, the Gospel of Matthew, comes to us through the sands of time in, uh, in ancient Koine Greek. So this prefix, meta, this noeo, uh, the suffix there, noeo is a word for mind, for thought, for life. Meta, is, uh, it denotes a change, a, a, a changing of a condition in something. So, so then put together metanoeo is like a changing of, of the mind, a turn, a, a turning from sin and turning to God. Metanoeo isn't just stopping sinning, like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that, or I shouldn't be doing this, I told myself I wasn't going to do it again, I promise I'm going to stop doing that. It's not just stopping, it's actually being changed, metanoeo. Now why do we need to be changed? We need to be changed because the problem of humanity is within the hearts of humans. You have on your outline here the heart of the problem in the darkness of the world. We look at the world and we see mess in the world. We see war. We see confusion. We see hurt. We see pain. But the problem isn't just out there. The problem is in here. 
The, the heart of the problem of humanity is the problem of the heart. Now, zooming off of Matthew 3, why there's this prophet John saying, repent, repent, repent. Zoom off Matthew and you start at the very beginning of the movie. The movie of God's creation. There's this God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. There's this God who's ultimate love. There's this God who creates the cosmos. The cosmos comes into existence and He puts uh, uh, creatures in this planet There's an animal kingdom and a plant kingdom and He makes humanity and He makes humanity uniquely in His own image and He pours out His love on humanity. Humanity, in turn, rebels against Him. It's a story of ultimate unrequited love. If you've ever been cheated on uh, in an intimate relationship, you know how painful that is. We have cheated on God. We have rebelled against God. And God being merciful and loving, He responds to this rebellion by giving humanity a promise. I'm going to clean up this mess that you have made. I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring a sacrifice that will stand in the place of what you have done. Well, why do we need a sacrifice? Because we've rebelled against the giver of life. The punishment that fits the crime for rebelling against the one who gives life is taking back of life A sacrifice will cover that because a sacrifice is one giving its life in the place of another. In the book of Genesis, God promises that He will send one through the seed of the woman who will overturn the darkness. And you follow that storyline from Genesis and that promise made to humanity, made to our mother Eve, then flows in history through different people. Most notably, the historical figure Abram, who God renames Abraham and his seed, Isaac, and Jacob, and Israel. And you get to the people, the promised people and a promised land who have inherited this promise from God that He's going to bring an ultimate sacrifice. And given to the people of Israel in that promised place are all sorts of symbols and rituals that are pointing towards that ultimate sacrifice. They have priests They have a tabernacle. They have a temple. And they they have a ritual of sacrifice where you're being reminded that what humanity has done deserves death and punishment, but God is going to provide the ultimate sacrifice. Israel goes through slavery in Egypt. Israel is rescued by God, the abolitionist who comes and creates an underground railroad and rescues them out of Egypt and brings them to that land of promise gives them revelation of all this ritual and sacrifice that ultimately was pointing to the one that God would send who would be the ultimate sacrifice for us. And that is the one that we have in front of us in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the historical Jesus. The historical Jesus comes to the people in the land of promise. He comes not just to the promised people in the land of promise, but for His people around the world, around the nations. And so we watch our news and we see you know, right now what's going on in the Middle East and we see all, all this raging and all this hatred and all this loss of life and all this violence. Hamas attacks Israel. Israel responds. Body bags. Violence. You know the word Hamas is actually in the Bible? Uh, The word Hamas in in Hebrew is a word that means violence. Let me quote to you from Genesis. Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with 
Hamas. Violence. And again, the violence is out there because the violence is in here. Jesus, in teaching on this very principle, he, 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 he challenged people to see that it's not just the murderers who have a problem, it's those who are angry that have a problem. You simply haven't acted on it, but it doesn't make you any better than those who are actually stabbing and shooting and killing because that same anger that's in them pulses through you. It's easy to look at a crisis like the Middle East and to stand particularly as Californians, as Angelinos, and just think, oh, you know, like those people, you know, their governments and whatever. But we look even at our own country, we see millions are murdered, millions are raped, millions assaulted, millions robbed, kidnapped. According to the California Attorney General, every day in our city on average over 100 people are arrested on violent offenses that include murder, rape, robbery, assaulting, and kidnapping. Another 800 every day in our city become victims in property offenses, including burglary, theft, and arson. Another hundred every day on drug offenses. Another hundred every day in our city on offenses relative to weapons and DUIs, hit and runs. Hundreds in our city every single day. Hundreds every single day. It's happening in our city, the city of angels. We like to think that we've evolved in Western culture, but we haven't. We, we, we see, for example, one of the, the most jarring images that even though our world with all of its technology and wisdom hasn't changed, the best example I think that illustrates that is slavery. According to recent global research, more people are enslaved worldwide than ever before in human history. We, we got people, you know, shooting things in outer space. We got all this advanced technology. We got all this medical stuff. We got all, all this education. We, we got the internet. We got, you know, AI. We got all kind of stuff going on. And we can't, we can't eradicate slavery? In its 400 years, the transatlantic slave trade is estimated to have shipped up to 12 million Africans to various colonies in the West. And we think, Aren't, oh, we're glad that's over with. No, according to global statistics, the number enslaved today is around 27 million. 27 million. The National Underground Railroad Freedom Center suggests that three out of four slavery victims are women, and that a half of the other modern slaves are children. Expert Kevin Bales says that because modern slavery is so cheap, it is worse than the Atlantic slave trade. People have become disposable. Their living conditions are worse than ever before as a result of the price tag that is put on slaves in the world today. A slave in 1850 in the American South cost the equivalent of $40,000. A nice used car, right? According to recent figures, the cost of a slave today is around ninety. dollars you can buy a human and planet Earth for 90 bucks. Depending on the work that they're forced to carry out, a young adult male laborer might only fetch 40 bucks, whereas an HIV-free female might attract a price up to $1,000. And guess what? Slavery is here, too. <laughs> it's not just, oh yeah, that's like in Africa somewhere, or that's in the Middle East somewhere. No, 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 it's here, too. Estimates by the U.S. State Department suggest that we have 17,500 slaves brought into the United States every year, with 50,000 of those working 
as prostitutes, farm workers, and domestic servants. According to the CIA, more than a million people are enslaved in the United States today. Thousands of cases that go undetected as well. We are immune to these facts. We like to think, oh, it's on that side of the ocean. It's happening here. In Los Angeles, we're blinded by the lights of Hollywood, the big screen, the quest for the American dream, education, money, a couple of cars, a picket fence, a timeshare. The bling is too bright for us to see the reality that is going on. You see the globe suffering, and we're filling up you know, stadiums to entertain ourselves with sports and music and the like. While the globe suffers in poverty and victimization by traffickers, we We celebrate the trivial, and we fail to see that the problem isn't just out there. The problem is in here. So the storyline of the Bible is helping us to see that. Like, God gave us life, and God loved us, and we rejected Him. And that brought death into the creation, and it made our hearts messed up. And so the call of the prophet John the Baptist, metanoeo, is the call that God had been giving from the very beginning, and it's a call that he gave to his people Israel to cry out to the world, meta noeo, turn, turn. Because one day a judgment is coming. One day you will breathe your last breath and you will be in his presence. Turn or burn. There is judgment. There's hell to be paid. And then that, that's the bad news. No one wants to hear that. You don't go to the doctor after having a physical, uh, hoping that all your numbers are going to be a hot mess and ha- you know, having him find out some bad news about some disease or something you have. That's horrible. But what if the doctor has a pill you can take that makes it go away? A diet that you can do that makes it go away? What if there's an antidote for it? That's why Christ has come. That's why John says, turn, metanoeo, turn, Turn, because the kingdom of God is at hand. Look at the text again. In those days, chapter 3, verse 1 of Matthew, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The kingdom. What's up with the kingdom? The kingdom. The kingdom is a promise that God has made as a part of restoring and renewing the creation and rescuing it from its rebellion. The kingdom is a theme that we read about from Genesis to the book of Revelation. It's the prophetic hope that God's people in that promised land would one day usher peace in, not just in their nation, but to the entire world. Here the Gospel of Matthew references Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. This prophecy refers to the Lord's restoration of His people in the land following exile. In ancient times, following Isaiah's prophecy, this passage was a part of messianic expectations. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah. Hundreds of years beforehand, people have been waiting for the kingdom to come. When the kingdom comes, God will eradicate evil from the world. And an unfortunate thing that we see even in times of war is that eradicating evil often and really every time at the end of the day needs to, needs to involve force. This isn't going away peacefully. There's going to be force that's used to eradicate evil. 
And so too it is with God. So the ancient Hebrews had hoped for the kingdom, but with the kingdom there was this prophetic hope that like God's going to come. He's going to usher His kingdom in, but it's going to come with fire. It's going to come with a winnowing fork. God's going to have to separate sheep and goats. God's going to have to usher it in. And it's, it's a day that is a scary day, but a day that ends with peace, which we all want. And so John comes, John the baptizer, and he says, Meta noeo, turn, come to God. Be rescued from His judgment that you deserve. Come to Him. Look at verse 5 in Matthew 3. Then Jerusalem was going out and all Judea and the district around the Jordan. The language uh, here is like a reversal of Exodus. The city of promise, the holy city Jerusalem, is emptying out and going into the wilderness where they will be baptized. Look at verse 6. Being baptized by Him in the Jordan River as they confess their sins. And now they're going back into the land cleansed in preparation for the King and His kingdom to come. So what the historic baptizer here is doing, see, under sin and salvation, he's preparing the way for the kingdom offer. He's preparing the way for the king of the kingdom. And the preparation for that, the red carpet that is being rolled out for the king to come, is the call of repentance. It's the call metanoeo. It's a call to be clean. When you have company coming, typically what do you do? Clean up the place. Or if you've just given up all hope because you have seven kids that are really messy, you just, you, you just don't have people over anymore. <laughs> or, or you just clean one section and, you know, uh, and you just stay here. Oh, can I use your bathroom? Oh, hang on one second. Five of those kids are boys. It's bad in there. You clean up. You, you, clean, the, you clean things up. Let me take a little segue to talk about this cleaning up and repentance stuff. You have on your outline Repentance 101, so metanoeo, we've talked about that. Let's talk about what repentance is. Because there's a lot of counterfeits of repentance that are out there. There's a lot of Rolexes with two L's in them. There's a lot of knockoffs that are out there. And you, you want to make sure that you yourself aren't self-deceived and have a phony kind of religion or a phony kind of repentance. Here's, some, here's some, uh, some, some phonies, some knockoffs for you. Number one, the religious. These are people who think, I went through the ritual, I did the penance, I, I, you know, I'm good. Like I, I told the priest I was a naughty boy or whatever. Religious repentance at its core has a poor motivation. It says things like, I want God to like me, so I will repent. Not knowing that God already loves you and that He demonstrates His love for you in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. The cross is God's demonstration of His love. He loves you. Jesus died in the place of your sins. God the Son died in the place of your sins. It, it's not if you repent, then He will love you. He, he loves you, and so you can repent. Religion doesn't get that. It gets the cart before the horse. Secondly, we have the spiritual. The spiritual are those who are like, well, you know, I'm doing spiritual stuff. Um, sometimes it's not through the church, but there are spiritual types who come through the church. I, you know, they meditate, they light candles, they play soft music, they read their horoscope, they do spiritual stuff, they, they're, they, they, they're vegan, you know, they don't hurt animals. If they do hurt animals, they're grass-fed, so that makes it fine, apparently. And, you know, and that, that's how they live, and so they pride themselves on being spiritual. 
Thirdly, there's the worldly. The worldly are those who are doing penance or praying, but they're pouting. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it's a verse to look at, a verse even to commit to memory. Paul warns the church about those who have a false repentance. This kind of repentance, it, 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 it's sad, it has sorrow, but it's just crocodile tears. There is no metanoel, there's no changing. It's like, oh, I feel bad, I made you cry, I'm, I'm sorry. And then you wallow in feeling bad, and you think like, well, I'm emotionally overwhelmed by what I've done, and so that must mean that I've changed because I feel so horrible about it. But this is an emotion of manipulation, and it, and it deceives many, because you think, I must have changed because I feel bad. You're supposed to feel bad when you do bad. That's a duh. But true repentance is deeper than feeling bad. It's change. Number four, there's the moralists. Moralists are often... Hybrids of spiritualists, they appeal to their goodness. They run in a marathon for, uh, you know, some homeless kids or something. They put a couple bucks in a cancer fund uh, jar. They, you know, they round up at TJ Maxx. Yeah, I'll round up. Look at me. They, 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 you know, they pick on trends, ride those trends. They posture. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. In Luke 18, Jesus spoke of these two guys who go in to pray, and one guy says, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me, God. And the other guy says, God, thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. That's the moralist. That's the moralist. All four of these involve feeling bad, but there is no ultimate change. There is no true repentance before the true God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. At the end of the day, they're all works. I, I did this, and so God, you do your part because I did this, right? I was, I was spiritual. I was moral. I was sad. Now, God, you do your part and make me happy. The poet Kanye West said, and I quote, I made Jesus walk, so I'm never going to hell, end quote. It doesn't work that way, bro. It doesn't work that way. Um, that's not how it works. You can't write a little little song, and then now, now you get a ticket to heaven. It doesn't work that way. The characteristics of false repentance are blame-shifting. Yeah, you know, something bad happened, but it's their fault. This goes all the way back to the garden when Adam sins, and he says, God, it was the woman you gave me. And the woman says, it was the serpent over there. We've been doing it ever since. Yeah, I lost my temper, but, you know, if you didn't do that, then I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, I stole at work, but they're not paying me enough, so really it's not stealing. I'm just compensating for the subpar wages that they should be paying me. I, I, I cheated on my spouse, but my spouse wasn't meeting my needs or we weren't in love. It's a, it's a blame shift. Secondly, there is minimizing or cavalierism. Well, I, you know, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't kill anyone for Pete's sake. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? You know, you minimize it. Thirdly, there is the inability to disclose everything. You sort of get a little bit out. Yeah, you know, I didn't, but you hold on to the rest. And, and the person that you've heard is like, you know, deserves that to know the full scope of it, but you hold it back. Number four, there's defensiveness and anger. Oh, it's not a big deal. Why do you get so emotional? I mean, every time I try to you go, whoa, what, what's, what's the defensiveness here? Fifth, there's emot emotional manipulation. So if I tell God I'm sorry, then he has to do something for me. I know I shouldn't be dating this person, but if I tell God I'm sorry, then, you know, 
Maybe he'll save that person or he'll do this or that. You know, it, it, it's the foxhole prayer. Like, I'm in pain, I hurt. Oh God, you know, give, give this to me and I'll do this. There's point tallying, number six, where you keep score. I'm not as bad as this person over here. There's uh, number seven, excuses for sin. But real repentance is, is not excuse making. I did it. That's real repentance. I did it. They say there's nine words that'll save a relationship. And here's the nine words. I am sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And those are important to have together because if you say, I am sorry, you know, it's like, okay, keep going. You know, I'm sorry you took it that way. Oh, okay, I see what we're dealing with here. You know, I, I am sorry I was wrong, but you did the same thing to me too. No, no, no. I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. It lays down the excuses. It lays down the point tallying. It lays down the emotional manipulation. It lays it all out on the table. It's patient. True repentance is also patient. When you've done wrong, you can't, you know, hey, I said I was sorry, and let's, let's, you know, just get over it or whatever. No, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta sit in the bed that you made. You gotta give it time to build that trust back. It's anxious, and finally, it has no lasting fruit. In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, uh, Jesus describes the relationship between repentance and new behavior, and he speaks of it bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. Repentance is not like deeds that we're doing to make God happy with us or others happy with us. It's the fruit of that change. You can see from these ten, these tendencies, and Again, I hope you don't read those tendencies and think about, so-and-so needs to hear this. I'm going to send him a link to this sermon afterwards. Well, this, is, it, this cuts through all of us. True biblical repentance moving down is marked by a conviction of sin. It is marked by a confession of sin. It is marked by a change from sin. Again, repentance isn't just stop sinning. Repentance isn't uh, managing it. Um, repentance is laying it to death. It's not managing it. It's mortifying it. It's killing it. Fourthly, true repentance is not compensation for those sinned against. By, by uh, compensation, I mean restitution. If you've stolen, you should pay it back. If you've lied about someone and damaged their reputation, you should go to those people you lied to and say, that wasn't true. I sinned. I lied. You extend yourself to pay for the damages that came from your sin. The person who says, I'm sorry, but doesn't try to fix it, it's like, like you know, I don't know, shooting someone and going, oh, my bad. You know, like, man, you gotta, that, that, was, that was crazy what you did. You've got to make it right. Number five, uh, community freedom from sin. Sin isn't also just at the individual level. When we sin, it hurts other people. It hurts our, our children. It hurts our parents, it hurts our siblings, it hurts our cousins, it hurts our co-workers. And so we've we got to understand this. And now come back with me to Matthew 3. The king of the kingdom has arrived. John is saying metanoeo. And he's not talking about the counterfeits. He's talking about the real deal that should be marked by the things we just discussed. Let's draw our eyes at verse 13 where we see Jesus coming on scene. What is going on? If baptism is a symbol of repentance, why on earth is Jesus coming to the waters? Jesus doesn't have sin. He's our innocent sacrifice for us. 
A, a sacrifice that has sin in it isn't a sacrifice at all. The whole point is someone innocent is paying for someone guilty. What is Jesus doing going down to the river? Verse 13 of Matthew 3. Jesus arrived at the Galilee at Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John was like, hold up, verse 14. Hold up, wait, you know, what are you doing here? I have need to be baptized by you, John says. Why do you come to me? So let's talk about this here, the, the purpose of the baptized Messiah. Messiah. Like, wh- why are you getting into the waters? Messiah, anointed one, the sacrifice. What, what, what are you doing? let's talk about that. We're going to talk about why Jesus get baptized. We're going to talk about next why, why John allows it to happen. You see, initially, John himself is perplexed. Look at verse 15. Jesus answers him and he says, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. So we see here the purpose. We see here the permission. Why does Jesus get baptized? What's interesting is that purification rites called for fresh running and clean water. What's interesting here, we know from geography and archaeology, that the particular area of the Jordan River where he was being baptized was not clean water. It's actually murky water. So why be baptized there? Because it wasn't about the quality of the water. It was about the location. The location was historic. The Jordan River there is the boundary and the point of entry into the land of promise that the children of Israel came through the exodus into the land to see God bring His kingdom. John is calling for the morally purified of Israel to to, to cleanse themselves in symbolism of a recreation of that exodus and entering into the land. In emulation of the original entry depicted in the book of Joshua writes Dr. Colin Brown, John's baptism called on Israelites to exit the land and return across the Jordan under the leadership of John in order to repossess the land as a consecrated people. The crossing of the Jordan holds the key to what John was doing. What is John doing? It's a cooperation of the promises of God to Israel. The Jordan is the boundary and the point of entry for the promised land. The Jordan marked the original boundary of the Holy Land. In the Hebrew Scriptures, Israel's formal act of entry in order to take possession of the land, was marked by this solemn crossing over the Jordan. Subsequently, the Jordan played an important part in the history of the Hebrew Bible. So they they come, they carry the Ark of the Covenant, which is a symbol of the presence of God. And when they cross the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan separate with the presence of God. It, it harkens back to the Exodus and the Red Sea and that whole thing. And then they, they come in and, you know, it's king and kingdom and Messiah and all, the, all these overtones. And then you keep reading in the Hebrew Bible with regard to this location. The Jordan plays an important part in the Elijah, Elisha cycle of stories. In particular, the crossing and recrossing of the Jordan and consecration and empowerment of Elisha as Elijah's successor. So John is tying Jesus to the promises of God to Israel by baptizing there. Matthew is writing this in a way to show that Jesus is God's Son. Jesus is recapitulating perfect the history of Israel. He's he's embodying the whole storyline of the Bible and he's doing it perfectly. Unlike Israel who wanders in the wilderness in doubt and sin and idolatry, he is doing this because he will be the sacrifice for his people. 
John is a prophet of the Hebrew Bible, and he speaks in, in, in that manner. So it's cooperation. Secondly, it's confirmation. Jesus speaks of fulfilling there in verse 15. Jesus fulfilled the prophetic scriptures by identifying with Israel's history and completing Israel's mission. This baptism, hence, represents Jesus' ultimate identification with Israel at a climactic stage in her history. God the Son has come to die for His people. Thirdly, it is a connection to the penalty of sinners. Jesus' baptism, like His impending death, would be vicarious. That is, done in the place of another person. That's what something vicarious is. And so as he's entering into the waters, he's not entering into the waters because he's symbolizing his own repentance. He's entering into those dirty waters because he's taking our dirt, our filth, our shame upon himself. It is, fourthly, a certification of the public ministry of Jesus. Going back to the history of Israel, the action was a symbolic penitential act of sanctification by which the baptized sought national renewal as they turned back and said, God, we've sinned against you. This land is under judgment because of our sins. Lord, bring this land back. Bring your promise. Bring your fire. Bring your kingdom. Moving down on the outline, see, we have the purpose. We have the permission. See, we have the pleasure of God the Father in the Son. As Christians, we believe that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. We believe the historical Jesus, that man, is not just a mere man. He's actually God the Son in the flesh. Look at verse 16. After being baptized, verse 16 says, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. So again, when Israel goes through the Jordan, the waters split open. When the true Israel comes, Yeshua, Jesus, the heavens split open. And a dove comes. Just like the dove in Noah's ark that a new age had dawned, so too now a new age has come. Judgment is being lifted. The flood will be over for my people. And then you look at verse 17, and now a voice comes and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the voice of the Father. Speaking of His Son. You see His affection for His Son, the pleasure of His Son, this is My Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And that pleasure that the Father has for the Son is given to you, church, because He took the penalty on Himself. He got in the dirty waters. He took our guilt and shame upon Himself. And then He went to the cross of Calvary where He bled out and died. And the story doesn't end there. He rose from the dead days later Showing the payment, the payment was received. The pleasure that the Father has for the Son has been given to sinners. The guilt, the shame, all of it has been, has been lifted. The flood has been lifted. And yes, the kingdom will come with fire and judgment, but for those of you who are in the Son, rather than fire, you have water. You've been washed. He has not appointed us unto wrath. He has appointed us to salvation in Christ. This brings me to the third point on your outline. So we've looked at sin and salvation, the king and his kingdom. The final point here about worship and worth. Repentance is a change. Metanoeo. It's a change. That that, that change of turning to sin and turning to God is, is all about seeing the worth, the infinite worth, the ultimate value of 
this Jesus. And responding to Him in worship and coming to Him. And we're not saying like, I'll do this if you do this. We've laid all that down and we're just acknowledging you are worthy of it all. You have Jesus is worthy of the Father's affections. He is His one and only Son. The Father had hinged all of human history on Him. And He came in perfect fulfillment of all of that history, of all of that prophecy, with everything that's going on in the Middle East and the war in Israel right now. You know, people are asking questions about the end times. Do you think we're living in the end times? Is this the battle of Armageddon? Magog and and Gog, is, is, is this what, what's that? And you go, I tell you what, reading the Bible, there's a whole lot of it that surely looks like that. The prophecies of Ezekiel, the prophecies of, of Persia coming into the land, which is modern-day Iran, the, the prophecies of these peoples in the north that are coming in, the prophecies of those in the south that are coming to attack. And You look at these nations surrounding and you see the war and you see the confusion, you see the death. Paradise has been lost. We're a long way from the garden. And the land that was given is full of bloodshed. And Jesus said this. He said before He left, He said there's going to be war, rumor of war, false Christ, there's going to be all this confusion. Everything looks exactly as He said it would. But the purpose of end times isn't for us to go, oh wow, you know, and get out our maps and our newspapers and figure out all the end times. The purpose of the end times is to draw us in affection. To see our our amazing God, to see His amazing love and to fall down before Him in metanoeo. Jesus is worthy of the Father's affection. Jesus is worthy of humanity's repentance. Look at chapter 4 of Matthew 3. On the heels of being baptized, Jesus goes into the wilderness for a period of 40 days and 40 nights. He overcomes the devil in the wilderness. Again, this recapitulates Israel's history. Israel was in the wilderness after the Exodus for a period of 40. And they were tempted and tried and they failed. Jesus goes into the wilderness for a period of 40. He is tempted and tried. He doesn't fail though, he succeeds. And then, then, as he punks the devil, then he goes on the heels of punking the devil and he starts preaching. Draw your eyes at verse 17. What is Jesus' message? According to Matthew 4, 17. Your best life now? No. Look at verse, 14, verse 17 of chapter 4. Repent, metanoeo, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' call of repentance goes into the world and it is echoing in 2023. Further than echoing, it is being harmonized by His church in this age as we cry out with John the Baptizer and Jesus of Nazareth and the prophets of Israel, repent. God is is worthy. God is worth it. Lay down your life. Come to Him. Be saved by Him. There is a God who is, and there's a God humans want, and the two are not the same. Lay down your figment of your own imagination, God, and come to the true God who is, and turn and be transformed. Jesus, finally, the final point here, is worthy of the creation's worship and the church's mission. We've been called to continue this message of repentance. And guess what? It's going to make us unpopular. Buckle up. You've got to get over it. 
if we are faithful to the word, it's going to make us unpopular. People don't, people don't like being told you're, you're wrong. You need to change. People don't like that. Uh, I didn't like it. Uh, it was in the 90s. A co-worker of mine was talking to me about Jesus. Talking to me about Jesus at work. So annoyed by this guy. He kept doing it. Patrick Short. Jesus, Jesus. I'm like, man, Jesus about Jesus. Stop, knock it off, Patrick. I, you know, like, I'm, me and Jesus are cool, man. I go to church on Sundays with my dad, you know, doing the, like, fake repentance thing. And Patrick, God bless him, laid into me and said, if you believe in Jesus, why are you living your life the way you're living it? I wanted to punch him in the face. I wanted to, I wanted to choke him out make him tap out. I, I, just, I was so offended by this guy. But he wasn't doing it to offend me. He was doing it because he loved me. Any more than if your doctor has to tell you the bad news that you have a form of cancer or something. Like Your doctor isn't like, ah, I can't wait to tell them they have cancer. <laughs> like, no, your doctor loves you, so your doctor's like, hey, you have this cancer, and like, here's, here's what needs to be done about it. That's the loving thing to do. The loving thing to do is to tell people, hey, there really is a God. And he really is love, but we've rebelled against him. So we, we need not merely to stop the rebellion. We need to turn to him and cry out to him, I am sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. And he has offered that for us. We're going to sing to him in a moment, and you guys get to come to the communion table, and you've got this, this, this bread, and you've got this juice that reminds you of that sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. A free gift that he's made for his people. And as you're doing that, it, it's meant to draw you in repentance and faith as you have these little pictures before you. That's what symbols do. Symbols are signifying an ultimate reality. You see a symbol and it's telling you of something that's deeper and profound. You, you come to the table and you repent of your sin and you come to Christ. And then we're going to have some people get in water and we're going to watch them go under the water and come back out, which is a picture of the washing and the cleansing of Christ, a picture of God's faithfulness to His people, a picture of a river and a promised land and a God who's going to come and return and end all the evil in the world. And until that day, while He is being patient, you can come to Him and you can have your sins forgiven and you can have a new heart. So I invite you to come. I invite you to respond to His Word today and receive Christ. I invite you to give up whatever way that you have been taking to try to get to God and lay it aside because there is one door to the building of salvation and it is through Christ. And He loves you. He's on the other side. He loves you. Come to Him. Be set free from Him. Let's pray. Let's sing. Let's have communion. Let's watch people get baptized. Father, we thank You for sending Your Son for us. We thank you for the gift of music and we now offer a song to you as we come to the communion table. We have a symbol before us, Father, and as we sing, I pray that the symbol would minister to your church, reminding us of what you have done. Lord Jesus, you were broken for us. You bled out and died for us. You rose from the dead in our place giving us the hope of resurrection and renewal of the earth. As we watch uh, four of our brothers and a sister 
get baptized. Uh, Lord, we are so thankful that you have drawn them to take this step of faith and to obey you and to model for us what you have done. So bless the communion, bless the baptism, receive these songs of worship, we pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray.